You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and today I'm very thrilled to have as my guest one of the best political reporters in the nation who authored what I view as the best book on our 45th president, Donald Trump. She's Maggie Haberman, a reporter for the New York Times, and the book she authored is called Confidence Man, the Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. This has been um, the the rise uh, and fall of Trump has been an ongoing story uh, on this show just because of our location in the middle of Obama Trump territory um, in the heartland of the nation. Uh, Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of books about Trump, and, and I've read a, a lot of them. And, and uh, I, I, for our listeners, again, this is the one I would recommend the most. Um, there were even stories that Trump feared um, uh, th- this book, uh, the publication of this book. But share with our listeners first your background, your history as a reporter, and how long you've covered Donald Trump. So I work for the New York Post and the New York Daily News, which are two of New York City's tabloids. Uh, New York City has a very aggressive tabloid culture. The Post is a paper that Trump has a very long relationship with, and he was sort of omnipresent in coverage. But I started covering him most intensely in 2011 when he was considering running for president that year or talked about running for president. And by then I was working for Politico. And that, of course, was the year when Trump floated the famous Obama birther lie, suggesting that Obama wasn't a, a U.S. citizen. Um, and uh, then I've you know covered him uh, on and off ever since, but mostly on. Um, I think what makes this book different and what I found the most interesting is it wasn't just uh, a regurgitation of, of the 16 campaign and, and his presidency. Uh, you, you had that angle that you just described of following him uh, re- really uh, back in the days as a New York's New York uh, uh, real estate developer. Um, and I think that's what makes this book really interesting because uh, everything about him is there in plain sight, really, based on his experience. But a lot of people uh, you go through influenced him in his career. Uh, and and which which of the which of those do you think were most significant in, in how he conducted himself as president? Sure. So there, there's a, there's a couple of answers to that, um, and this this is not a, a full list by any means, but it's the it's the I think the most pointed. Look, his father is present in everything he does. When he first went to the Oval Office, the first picture that he put on the credenza behind the Resolute desk was his father, um, and that was actually the only picture that was there for a while. And eventually, people noticed that there were no other family pictures, and and he added some. Uh, but his father, who was, you know, an effective businessman and and a, and a, a an actual developer, um, and also sort of a ruthless person and a corner cutter and 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 somebody who believed that you know government could be milked to serve private business interests, um, you know, who played all kinds of shell games with his taxes and and uh, who wanted a successor in his son, and who was a pretty as. Ivana Trump said in her biography, a pretty brutal father. Um, So Fred Trump, who, you know, I think influenced his son on the idea of being a winner, you know, uh, winners and killers, killers and losers, 
more than anyone. And then Trump found something of either either an avatar or a protector or both in Roy Cohn, the lawyer who started representing him in 1973, when Trump and his father and their company were being sued by the Justice Department for racially discriminatory housing practices. Those are the two biggest influences. And then there's there are various figures in New York, whether we're talking about figures in in the mob, you know, Trump Trump was was mafia adjacent in in a lot of his building practices for a long time. Uh, and we've seen a number of people, James Comey, you know, the the one I can think of the most, um, describing Trump's behavior as sort of mafioso like uh, when he was president and his dealings with Trump and Trump's demands for loyalty and so forth. Trump's sense of, you know, theatrical showmanship as an elected official comes from, I think, watching Ed Koch, the mayor of New York City in the in the 1980s, uh, and Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor in the 1990s, and with whom Trump developed this very transactional relationship over time. And then there's George Steinbrenner, the, the Yankees owner, who was something of a role model for Trump, um, you know, from whom Trump got the catchphrase, you're fired on The Apprentice. And he took all of these to the Oval Office. And then I left one out, which is Meet Esposito, who was the the Brooklyn Democratic Party boss <clears throat> in uh, uh, the decades when Trump was was learning the ropes in New York City. And he he practiced machine politics. He made judges and district attorneys and people had to come and kiss his ring. And Trump clearly thought that's what politics in D.C. was going to be like. Um, and I think he was... Uh, very unpleasantly surprised to discover that it didn't work like that. You know, he's he's used his um, uh, what's described as his business expertise uh, very well in his career. Uh, that this was a businessman, a builder coming to the White House to get the country set straight. Um, but it seems like his his career as a businessman, as you as you trace uh, throughout his career. Really, I mean, in fairness, there were some positives, and, uh, but but there are some very stark negatives as well. Um, can yeah. it be true that you know he was uh, a, a leader in the New York real estate industry, but he also used some unsavory practices? I mean, how how would you rate overall his business acumen and and the claim to being a business uh, a good businessman? I think there's two separate issues. I think that when it comes to the world of finance, I think he knows extremely little, um, and I think that he managed to conflate the real estate industry with finance at a time, you know, in the 1980s when when there was such intense interest in Wall Street uh, and 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 such a, a sort of a rise of the, the Gordon Gecko style approach to life. Um, I don't think he was a leader in New York real estate. I think that he was he was a real estate developer. I, but I think that, you know, he was not one of the major figures in New York real estate at all by actual development. He was not one of the major, they were not one of the major families. He was just, you know, a very, very good self-promoter. And there's value in that, but that's different than the idea that he was a leader. How many times did he file bankruptcy? Oh God, I don't have it in front of me. I think there were, I can't remember if there were five or six uh, bankruptcies. They weren't personal bankruptcies. Um, right. They were business bankruptcies. And he will always make that distinction um, because the losses, of course, were not his. And one of the things about Donald Trump is that the losses are suffered by somebody else. Um, you know, I, I think that he, uh, uh, I think that, I think it was, God, I think it was six, um, okay. but it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, and I remember, I'm old enough to remember reading, hearing about this guy 
uh, back in, in probably the 80s is when I first became aware of him. Mm-hmm. When did he, and I follow politics a lot, so mm-hmm. I see his name pop up, but when did he start really begin, getting a national profile where people, regular people across the country started noticing and hearing the name? Uh, it really, it really was the 1980s. It was actually the early 1980s. You know, he, he was hard at work with PR reps. I mean, he, you know, in the 1970s, he started getting a name around the city. Um, he was very, very concerned with getting press attention. In the 1980s, he had a number of people working on that effort for him, including Roy Cohn, including Roger Stone, um, you know, who's become infamous uh, in connection with, uh, uh, you know, various various actions taken by Trump over the last couple of years, um, you know, with a pardon that Trump gave, with 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 Stone egging Trump on to try to stay in office. Uh, and he was very good, as I said before about self-promoting, he was very good at getting people to think that he was this titan of industry when he just wasn't. And he established, he, I, one of the things he seemed to uh, grasp was was the Trump brand, uh, getting into casinos, gosh, how many books he wrote to Miss America. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned in the book, his name was everywhere all of a sudden. Well, that was one of the ways in which I think he convinced people that he was... Uh, a bigger figure than he was, was he just created volume. You know, he created volume through the books. He created volume through various, you know, things that he slapped his name on. He did recognize that, that his name was a brand. And I think he tended to that. He just tended to it in ways that I think most people would consider at times unproductive. So one, one interesting thing, I just, there were so many, so many uh, uh, items in the book, uh, pieces of data that I thought interesting was the polling data. And I believe this, this was, uh, um, well, I forgot the year, to be honest, but uh, it was 1988. Okay. 88, where he starts thinking, you know, the national profile, people urging him to run for president. He has uh, solid favorable ratings among Hispanics and African-Americans. They see him in terms of achieving the American dream. And that's why I asked about his business background, the way he sells himself. Um, I, I also recall that they his show, The Apprentice, had very solid ratings among African-Americans and Hispanics. It, it seems, I, I mean, what really turned him away from that possible foundation as he ran for the presidency to, to seek another way? It seems like he had a possible avenue of maybe being a type of healer uh between the races uh i i don't think he was ever going to be that i mean he you know he had he he had a yes there were there were there were some data points that he was viewed although i will say on that polling data that memo which was done by doug schoen um who's still a very active pollster uh does not include methodology it does not include percentages in a meaningful way so it's really hard to know what we're talking about that memo and i write this in the book looked like it was written for trump's consumption um, you know, as they were trying to sell him on on running and and therefore hiring them, and they can make some money. Um, I don't think he was ever going to be a racial healer. I what I trace in the book is decades of racist statements and and postures. Um, and and you know, seeing seeing black people as a, as either you know a means to an end, um, either for you know in 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 celebrity or sports. Um, you know, through 2015, he was talking about banning an entire religion from the country. So I don't think he was ever positioned for that. I think that, I think that if anything, and I, again, I write this in the book, but I think Trump sees hate as a a civic good. And I think he plays to that constantly. 
You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And today my guest is Maggie Haberman, who's the author of a, of a book uh, called about Donald Trump, Confidence Man, the making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. She's a political reporter for the New York Times and previously with Politico uh, in the New York Post, I believe. Uh, we're talking a little bit about her book uh, here, and I, I wanted to uh, highlight another uh, little-known uh, fact that I found very interesting from your book that, again, helps explain uh, the rise of Trump, and that's that's this kind of obscure New York governor's race. I believe it was in 2010, uh, but that seemed to provide some hints of what was to come as far as uh, breaking the norms in our politics. That's right. That's right. This was... At the end of, uh, not actually, wasn't the end. It was right in the middle of the Tea Party era and wave. You remember, there were, I think, it was sixty-three Republican gains in the House that year. And that same year in New York, a man named Carl Palladino, a Western New York businessman, um, challenged the establishment favorite in a Republican primary named Rick Lazio. Lazio had ten years earlier been the Republican nominee against Hillary Clinton in her Senate race. And Lazio was widely, a former congressman from Long Island, was widely expected to be the winner. Palladino beat him two to one. Uh, People really didn't see it coming. And while he lost handily to Andrew Cuomo, uh, it was a real harbinger of what was to come, particularly as he, you know, faced these, these negative headline, I shouldn't say negative, he faced these, these aggressive headlines um, early on in his campaign about racist and sexist emails that he had been sending around. He had a he had a child whom he had fathered um, through a, an extramarital affair, I believe it was. Um, and you know, there were there were these were things that would have sunk another candidate once upon a time, and voters either didn't care or liked these things about him, and. This was a real, I think, harbinger of what we were going to see five and six years later with Trump. Yeah, the lessons learned, never apologize and make claims without backing up. And you you go on to talk about in 2014, which I thought was interesting, never a time when so many winning candidates were underwater in favorable ratings. And and we're getting a little deep here in the political polling, but um, usually the favorable ratings go along with the chances of winning, but that was kind of turned on its head and another indication of the where, where our politics were changing. That's exactly right. And it was 2014 was a real flashing neon sign that voters don't like politicians in general and that that fact is not going to be predictive of who they choose. You know, we, we still, I've spent a lot of time on here talking to a lot of different guests in politics and, and journalism and analysts, something happened. I mean, after Obama's victory in 12, it just seemed like something happened leading up to Trump's victory. And, and uh, you know, there's always talk like chicken and egg, whether Trump came first or, or the conditions came first that he took advantage of. But I think it's the latter. But do you have thoughts on that? What 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 happened there in our country that led to this uh, enormous shakeup in our politics? Well, I write about this that, you know, Trump did not create this polarization that exists in the country, but he certainly did fuel it and exploit it and accelerate it and then benefit from it. And, uh, you know, I I think that voters went through, you know, the 1990s were, as you know, a very difficult time in this country um, on certain fronts and certainly for polarization, you know, the the Gingrich-Bill Clinton wars, all of the investigations, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, um, the, the 2000 election being 
decided by the Supreme Court, the 2001 terrorist attacks in, in New York and a field in Shanksville and at the Pentagon, um, two wars that went on for years and years and years um, and cost many American lives and, and many, many, many American dollars. Uh, the 2008 fiscal crisis, these are a lot of national traumas in a very short amount of time. And so I think that people were already feeling like they couldn't trust anything. They were disillusioned. And then the first black president was elected and at least part of the Tea Party energy was a backlash to that. And I write about that as well. And I think all of that sets the conditions for someone like Trump. You know, this era of mistrust had been <clears throat> brewing for some time. And Trump, who thrives on mistrust and fuels it, was exactly the right person and the right celebrity to come in and further foment it. It seems uh, you're, in, in the book, you seem to point where he, he made the decision. He didn't run in 12, but it, 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 he really was setting the groundwork for running uh, in, in 16. Uh, he trademarked Make America Great Again, for example. But the story you tell of him going on the floor at the convention, I thought was really interesting as well. The Republican convention in, in New Orleans. Uh, yeah, he uh, he in 1988, he was uh, he decided at the last minute that he wanted to go to the convention and um, the the firm of Black Manafort and Stone, Roger for uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort's firm um, was in, was involved in aspects of uh, convention production. Uh, Trump goes, um, he's secretly seeing Marla Maples while he's there, uh, according to a number of people um, with whom he was having an affair at that point. And, but what's, what's interesting is he, you know, there, there various addictions were getting fed. One was the attention addiction with Marla Maples. The other is the attention addiction um, on the floor of the convention where he's, he's walking with a, an associate of Stones named Lawrence Gay and Trump looks up and he sees these balloons hanging from the wall. And he says to himself, this is what I want. Yeah. And Gay, I think, says, you know, excuse me or something something like that. And Trump repeats it. And there you see the makings of Trump looking at the most superficial aspects of the presidency or the presidential nomination process. And that's what appeals to him. And it's all about attention and being celebrated. And I think that you saw that unfold uh, decades later. You had mentioned Roger Stone, and I he's in the background, it seems like, of well, forefront background, whatever, of, of Trump's career throughout, right up to January 6th. Um, he seemed to be the one, he was involved with Paladino's race too, correct? Uh, correct, where, that's right. And, and saw the connection of celebrity and conflict as a powerful force in, in politics, where you keep things stirred up constantly, and that's, there again, uh, that seems to be the style Trump had in, in the White House was just constantly, uh, um, you know, making conflict kind of the centerpiece of his of, of his public pronouncements and actions. Stone and, and Trump are um, they have a very, very complicated, long relationship. Um, you know, Stone is uh, Trump both resents the idea that Stone gets described as his brain and yet, you know, hangs on to Trump. Uh, sorry, hangs on to Stone um, pretty firmly, uh, even as he shoves him out sometimes. Um, there is no Donald Trump presidency without Roger Stone. And I think that Trump is aware of that on some level. 
So you, you also trace the roots of Trump's antipath- antipathy to John McCain, which I hadn't really been aware of yeah. before. Yeah, it goes it goes back to the 1990s when McCain, I mean, among other things, I think McCain took issue with Trump. This is this is according to a former McCain aide. And I, I don't get into this in the book, but he gets into it at his own that McCain and Trump had some argument on the sidelines of Trump's congressional testimony in 1993 related to Native American casinos. Um and then uh, McCain opposed and backed Nadler, Jerry Nadler, who uh, at the time was uh, uh, representing an area of the Upper West Side. Later, obviously, Nadler became, you know, another antagonist of Trump. Uh, but um, uh, Trump um, had been trying to get a low interest loan from the federal government for this West Side project in Manhattan and Nadler opposed it and McCain backed Nadler's opposition. And, you know, Trump often likes to suggest that, you know, I mean, it's funny, Trump, Trump can, because Trump says so much, he doesn't always remember what he says, but he, he remembers the inputs. He remembers who he believes wounded him. Uh, and so the fact that um, McCain had, in Trump's mind, crossed Trump in the 1990s it was not lost on a lot of people who who worked for him then and saw how he acted toward McCain later. Another example of tra- transactional politics, or or the lack of, um, uh, I, I think, uh, I, you know, another thing that I I guess I had forgotten or maybe wasn't even aware of, but uh, Trump actually won two primaries in 2000, yes. Uh, yes. And, and so how, how did that? come about this is where he seemed to go hot and cold on running but how did that come about and he actually won a couple of states he won he won based strictly on celebrity uh, and it's really important to remember now and this, this was roger stone who had basically been ousted from the two-party system because of a scandal of his own during the bob dole race in 96 but this was stone pushing trump <clears throat> front and center to go uh to go run um in the reform party uh, primary against Pat Buchanan, um, Wayne Barrett, um, who was the original chronicler of of Donald Trump and did really the best investigative work on him that that, that was done, um, and many of us have have tried to emulate him since. But Wayne believed that Roger was doing this to try to sink Buchanan, to try to suck up to the Bush folks, which Stone denied and. Called, called Barrett a distortionist and so forth. But Stone was pushing Trump to do this. And Trump was really half-hearted at best about it. You know, he took a bunch of he 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 quote unquote wrote a book that was that was ghostwritten by a man named Dave Shiflet, who Stone went and found. Um and it meant that Trump took a bunch of policy positions that he then had to account for for the next 15 years. Um, and particularly in 2015, um, that he hadn't really thought much about. And this book was written after Dave Shiflet spent an hour and a half with Trump, or no, hour and 45 minutes. Um, and so, and and that was that. And but it was mostly really Stone's vision. And so Trump was barely there. He's clearly being, you know, puppeteered by Stone on this, and yet he still wins two primaries after not really running. Um and that also should have been a warning sign for a lot of folks about the power, the power of celebrity and the power of Trump's celebrity in particular. And one of those states was Michigan, right here in the Midwest. Right. Um, he he uh, 
you know, it, it didn't require a ton of effort, but he still did it. Yeah. Yeah. It just shows that power of celebrity. And, and again, what you mentioned, and then the Roger Stone uh, conflict and Stone was kind of the one, wasn't Stone the one that connected Cone and, and Trump together? No, um, uh, other way around. Cone connected Stone and Trump. Okay. I I guess to wrap up, just a final question here. I mean, uh, looking back, I mean, this seems incredible I, I, that that all this has happened, and um, in in our country, and so many of the norms, political norms, have been broken, and we continue to see that now when we pick up the paper. But uh, as you're writing this as a longtime reporter, I mean, what's going through your mind on? on our country and where we're at, where, where we've been, where we're at, where we're going. I mean, I, that, that's kind of a broad question, but I mean, um, you're somebody that's followed politics quite a while and Trump in particular. And, and um, it is, is how do we, I guess, how are we going to heal to get out of this? Is it just going to be the Republican party moving on from Trump? Do you think, or. I don't think the Republican party is moving on from Trumpism. I think that he has, he has eaten up and reproduced the, the Republican Party as something with his DNA, um, you know, and it's interesting because to that question, you got to see how that goes. You know, the the idea of just mean spiritedness and 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 glorifying violence uh, went too far in 2022 for a lot of voters. When you had a bunch of Republicans mocking Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, who had been beaten in the head with a hammer by an intruder, yeah. and people were treating this like it was some kind of a game. Um, and so I don't think the Republican Party is going to quickly move on. I think they are going to find in a series of successive election cycles, as they have for the last three, that Trumpism only gets you so far and that it is it is not a winner in a lot of districts and in a lot of states. And so, but it was enough of a winner in, in a, a handful of battlegrounds in 2016 that he won. Um, I don't know what the future looks like. I, you know, I, I think that I think that there are changes that Democrats have to make as well. My colleague, former colleague Alex Burns, who now works at Politico again, uh, just wrote a really good piece in the New York Review of Books uh, based on on a, a handful of books about Democrats and about Obama or about Biden, about sort of where Democrats need to be looking. And I don't think the answer is just waiting for Trumpism to die out. The book is called Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. I, I, I really highly, highly recommend this to our listeners that, that, to get an understanding of, of, of Donald Trump, a true understanding uh, before his, um, his run for the presidency in 2016. The author has been my guest today, Maggie Haberman. She's a, a political reporter with The New York Times and, again, the author of this out, outstanding book. Uh, Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've been really busy, but I really appreciate you taking the time to be my guest today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.